Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Bring, bring. Oh, wow. Uh, is that an bring, analog bring. telephone? Oh, man. Bring, we, bring. Uh, I, don't, I guess we didn't have the bring, bring. Uh, intellectual property rights to the Skype You're sound. You're going to have to so pick up. No longer... Bring, bring. Oh, sorry. Bring. Hello. Oh. How may I direct your call? Hey. Hi. Hey, Um, I have a question. Uh, fancy that. I have one too. Where uh, Where are you? Uh, I'm in Texas. Just got here yesterday. Oh my gosh. Drove, drove from you California. Back where you were raised. That's You're correct. You're Texan at heart. That's the heart correct. of you beats texas mind Blood. mind body and soul for better or worse um i'm seeing my family for the first time in uh, like almost a year so it's just strange it's strange for everyone i'm glad i can get to them somehow right um, yeah no it's a good time to be able to do that yeah and it's uh anyway so that's where i am where are you oh i'm in brooklyn same as i've been forever same as always i barely remember it um yeah well, here's uh, here's my question for you this week. Uh, I've been hearing a lot about COVID and the heart. A lot of stories have been coming out about this, a lot of reporting and studies. Um, one, I guess, typical frightening headline is COVID-19 can wreck your heart, even if you hadn't had any symptoms, Scientific American. Um, Wait, wreck your heart? COVID-19 can wreck your heart, uh, which sounds like a... Like a, like a pop song, wreck your yeah. heart. Anyway, um, that's you know alarming. What's going on with that? Oh man, you know, uh, that is obviously, I guess, one of those statements that is true, but also extremely misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of viruses that can do things, but don't do them hardly with any regularity but it is a really fascinating emerging area of science as well, what, to exactly what is it? how what does it mean what does it mean the the virus you know it doesn't stop at our lungs um the the virus attaches to cells in our body and makes its way in and can move through our vascular system and infect our heart and people have had cardiac complications have had blood clots um arrhythmias even sudden cardiac death. And we've known that from the beginning. Um, but just exactly how that's happening and how often has been a mystery that's just starting to unfold. Hmm. I think the reason you're seeing it now is because it's gotten more attention as there have been reports of these cardiac effects happening in young, healthy people. Uh-huh. Like like the the sort of idea that I mean, as that headline said, like, you can have a really mild case, think you're fine, and then end up with heart issues later. Right. That seems to be the case. It seems to be when things are happening like that, um, because they are. there's an inflammatory process that's lingering in your body. You know, maybe your body essentially sort of still thinks the virus is around and is attacking cells of your own heart mm-hmm. and trying to eradicate them. And that sort of stuff, even if it's... It, and it does seem to be not a common occurrence at all um, among young, healthy people. But 
we don't know exactly how uncommon and exactly, you know, what it might mean longer term if you were having some inflammation in your heart from okay. this. Do we know how severe or how frequent this is? We should talk to someone who is uh, smarter about this than I am, a cardiologist specifically. Great. Would that be okay? Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be wonderful. Okay. Who should we call? Um, I think we should call Amy Kontorovich. She's a cardiologist and researcher at Mount Sinai here in New York, uh, where she's been looking into COVID and how it affects the heart. Great. Hi there, it's Amy Kontorovich. Hi. Hi, Dr. Kontorovich. This is Jim and Catherine. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. So we have questions for you about the the heart. Um, but I think maybe the best way to start would just be to have you introduce yourself and tell us about what your work consists of these days, currently. Sure. So my name is Amy Kontorovich. I'm a cardiologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. And um, my focus is on genetic cardiology. So I treat patients and I diagnose patients with potentially and confirmed inherited cardiovascular diseases. Um, my research focus has for many years been on myocarditis and trying to understand genetic factors, human genetic factors that influence the susceptibility of um, different individuals to develop this condition. Um, for, for people who don't know, and that group includes me, what is myocarditis? So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart tissue. The myocardium is, is the heart muscle that provides the pumping mechanism to send blood throughout our, our body. That's an important function of the heart. <laughs> sure is. If I recall my physiology correctly. Um, well, so that, that inflammation, that could be caused by lots of things, right? Yes. Uh, most commonly a virus, but also bacterial infections and fungi, um, different toxins, different drugs. The list of triggers for myocarditis is really lengthy. So it can be caused by lots of different things, different kinds of microbes, as well as, as you mentioned, you, are, you study people with hereditary genetic propensities to develop that. So it's a combination of having that propensity and then having some exposure. I mean, this is still being sorted out. And, um, you know, we're still um, in the midst of the studies to try to figure out if there is such a reproducible pattern. We've, we've started yeah. to shine light on this and, and other groups as well have shown this association between certain genotypes, people who have certain variations or, or spelling in their genes that may predispose them to develop myocarditis. So we're still figuring this out, but uh, it's maybe not purely an infectious exposure that determines this. It's some maybe some combination of someone's genetics and then what they're exposed to that determines their likelihood of getting myocarditis. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this, this condition has been studied um, you know, pre-COVID in a, a number of different settings, but um, the, the viruses that were typically involved were um, Coxsackie virus, adenovirus, provirus. And so what we know about the disease primarily comes from um, patients who have, have had myocarditis in, that, in those settings. Um, and um, what's kind of interesting, and this is what, what, what my research focuses on, is um, why these viruses that are so common 
that, for example, with Coxsackie, 75% of us have been exposed to Coxsackie B3, and most of us will not develop myocarditis to that. So what is it about the folks who will get myocarditis that leads them to develop that complication? That's kind of where the human genetics question comes in. Is Coxsackie the, the cat controlling your mind thing? What is um, that? No. Is Coxsackie the, the, when the cats like control your mind or whatever? Do I sound insane? <laughs> I'm trying to think back on like the microbiology. Isn't there like a cat virus where? <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. It sounds, it's not it a virus bad. though. It's a, it's a parasite. Um, oh, what oh. is it like Bartonella well, see, or something? This is... <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. But um, <laughs> all right, I've clearly gotten up us off well, track, so, and I apologize. You know, the the thing is that they're too small to see, so um, it's easy to lump them together. But people we're learning about the importance of viruses, and they, they, there's a similar there at least in like these different viruses trigger our immune systems in different ways and create you know effects that are kind of difficult to predict. So what it, what it, clinically what does myocarditis mean? If I had myocarditis, what should I expect to happen? Well, that's also another interesting factor because it's different for everyone. There are people who have had myocarditis that may never know it and may never have gone to a doctor or hospital because the symptoms were relatively mild. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are individuals who have had a sudden cardiac death because of myocarditis and everything in between. So it can have kind of um, a self-limited course, but in some cases it can develop into a permanent injury of the heart muscle or the myocardium, and that's called cardiomyopathy, and that can be permanent, and it can cause long-term heart failure. It can cause patients to require a heart transplant or other advanced therapies, um, and again, in some cases can be associated with early mortality. And is that what we're seeing um, or presumed to be seeing in the case reports of young athletes who've had cardiac complications after having COVID? Yeah, there are a lot of case reports of possible myocarditis and confirmed myocarditis. Um, There's a some connection issue. I, I My office is just like a steel box, but... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't like that you have to work in a steel box with no windows. With no window, right? I'm really, I'm painting a picture here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your service. Sorry, though. okay. Um, I am not hearing anything. Hi there. Hi. Hi, I'm sorry. I, I have a good feeling about this one. Okay. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us. Um, so there have been case reports in, in medical journals and, and news reports of people having serious complications, young, uh, otherwise healthy people having myocarditis. Is that clearly linked to COVID-19? Is that association now beyond dispute that some people are at risk for pretty serious heart complications? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in the question. Um, so... <laughs> Um, the biggest study, I think, was the, the one that came out earlier this month from Ohio, looking at the, the cohort of college athletes uh, with cardiac MRI. And those individuals largely had mild COVID infection, but they, they did have COVID and they did have abnormalities 
some of which met criteria for myocarditis. Um, and some of which were abnormal but uh, and suggestive, but not quite a slam dunk for myocarditis. But it's compelling. It's probably a true association. There wasn't a control group in that study. So we also know that athletes can sometimes have different features on their cardiac imaging because of their involvement in, in sport, especially if it's competitive and endurance sports. Um, that can lead to some cardiac remodeling. Um, hmm. So, you know, the, the follow-up that would be nice to have would be um, comparing cases and controls. But I think it's very compelling. And that result, coupled with all the different, you know, individual case reports and smaller case series that have come out over the last few months and um, some of the cell-based work that's come out, I mean, it's clear to me that COVID is causing effects on the heart in some people. Yeah. What we don't really know is whether... There are patterns that we can predict. Myocarditis, like I said, is very variable in its presentation. But um, it was interesting that this college athlete study was mostly patients who didn't have symptoms of myocarditis, but just had imaging findings of it. Right. So this, the researchers went looking to see, you know, these weren't people who were complaining of any myocarditis symptoms. They were not having problems. In fact, they had you know, just mild cases of COVID-19. But if you do this cardiac MRI, which is an advanced and expensive procedure, not something we're going to do on on everyone, but if you do that, you could find some signs of myocarditis, which then, you know, how significant is that? Yeah, we've never really looked at myocarditis from this angle. I mean, COVID is stretching our <laughs> clinical skills in lots of different ways. But this is one of the kind of interesting consequences is that, we're just approaching this question from a different perspective. Usually we deal with the consequences of myocarditis and make decisions about how to manage patients because the initial presentation is, is one where they're symptomatic. So this is just completely different. And the other difference is that although some of the um, individuals in that Ohio study certainly did have imaging characteristics that were diagnostic for myocarditis, um, other reports that have come out, there was another series from Germany, um, they've showed sort of a mixed bag of, of cardiac inflammation on cardiac MRI, not quite fitting or, or at least not declared to have fit the, the criteria for diagnosing myocarditis. So I think there may be a specific type of COVID-related myocardial injury that may not fully fit into the myocarditis paradigm. It may be related, but it may be something that like defies grouping with how we usually think about myocarditis. And if that's the case, we can't really extend the same recommendations that would be broadly applied in other types of myocarditis. Right. If you could put this into context for me, one of the things one of the things we're hearing a lot is we are very, very uncertain. Even even for people who have mild cases, we're very, very uncertain when the long-term effects of uh, a coronavirus infection could be. Is myocarditis, like out of all of the things that we don't know um, could stay with someone long term, is myocarditis one of the most concerning or is it just one of many? Like, how would you kind of place it in the constellation of things we don't know about long term effects? Uh, I, it's hard for me to think outside of the heart because all day long I'm thinking about the heart. I feel like I would give you a biased answer if I said that um, I, I would put myocarditis on the top of the list. I mean, well, I mean, as Jim you know, said, it, I, it does seem like the heart is pretty important for. Yeah, no, and, yeah. and we know that 
It's not like permanent COVID toes are going to be the, <laughs> the greatest fear. Yeah. And in true myocarditis, you can kind of have a sudden cardiac arrest or like, you know, a very serious arrhythmia that, that can stop your heart. So yes, on the scale of severity of potential outcome, it's up there. But the actual risk because of how prevalent these outcomes are, I think is just really not defined yet. And Got I'm it. sorry to add to the burden of unknowns. <laughs> well, it seems like you're doing the opposite in your work, actually. Um, how do you, can I just have one question on the mechanics here? Like, how does the virus do this? Like, do we know? How do you, and how do you study it? Yeah, like to build on that, I guess, is it, is the virus actually infecting the heart cells or is what you're seeing, you know, inflammatory processes from infection elsewhere? So maybe, and yes, <laughs> um, it's so interesting. There's a lot of potential mechanisms that have been proposed. Um, one of the reasons there was a lot of early attention on cardiac involvement in, in COVID was, I mean, first of all, it's a coronavirus and we have um, some you know, experience dealing with other coronaviruses like the, the MERS virus and the first SARS-CoV outbreak. And there were cardiac complications associated with both of those pandemics. And there was limited evidence that those coronaviruses could get into heart tissue. So it turns out that the way that this SARS-CoV-2 virus gets into any cell is by um, latching on to kind of what we call a receptor. It's like the doorway for the virus to get in. And this receptor is called ACE2 or ACE2. And heart cells have a lot of this ACE2 on them. And in particular, that the muscle cells of the heart carry a lot of this ACE2. So it's not surprising that the virus can get into the heart because the, the door is there. What's not really been shown reproducibly is good evidence that the virus definitely gets into the heart muscle cells in humans, but the virus is in the tissue of the heart. So there are lots of different cells of the heart. There's, you know, the, the actual muscle cells that are responsible for pumping. There's not really great evidence that the virus can get into those cells in humans, but there is evidence that the virus is inside the heart tissue. So it might be between the muscle cells or it might be in other cell types of the heart. Um, so I think that's pretty clear at this point. So we don't know yet exactly how it does this, um, but there are many possible ways being studied right now. It seems like the virus also triggers a lot of inflammation, um, mm -hmm. and the inflammation can cause injury directly to the heart, um, even if the virus isn't directly infecting those heart muscle cells. Got it. Got it. What should people do with this information? Like, given what we do know and what we don't know, does this change anything about how we behave? I mean, we're in a moment where... Lots of things are opening back up, including notably college athletics. What, what does this mean for just how we're entering the fall? I don't know that we just understand the story well enough yet to have it impact our decisions beyond, you know, the preventive measures that we all should be taking to reduce the spread of the virus in the community. This is more general answer to your question, I don't think there's a specific guidance that I can recommend about how to potentially prevent cardiac complications if one were to get COVID. I just don't think we know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. It's difficult right now, obviously, because we're having these preliminary findings and then being asked immediately to translate them into actionable 
guidelines and policy before we'd normally be able to say anything definitive. I think that's one of the hardest parts is that it's playing out in real time. And you look back at papers from May and they're irrelevant now. You know, everything's happening, you know, at a rapid pace. And yet we're not that much further along in our understanding of this than we were at the start of the pandemic when it comes to the cardiac piece. I mean, yes, we know that there's a potential injury to the heart, but we don't know whether there are ways to prevent it or minimize it and who gets it and and why. We just, we still don't know. Okay. Thank you. This is really helpful. Um, We'll follow your work and look forward to to listening to you when we do know. Thank you. It was a toxo, it was toxoplasmosis that Catherine was thinking of. Oh, yeah. And that's it, that is a virus or no? No. It's a parasite, oh. but it's fascinating. It seems to change humans' behaviors. There was a great <gasps> right, feature in right, the Atlantic right. like seven years ago about this. Like, Got it. Doesn't it make holes in the brain? Like, yeah. yeah, you get... <laughs> well, if you get a bad infection, yeah, but um, it more likely wants people to be like, you know, carriers of it. It, it changes the behavior of, of humans and of... Huh of mice, the intermediaries, and uh, anyway, makes do them not want to kill them. I, we're, we're getting a little off off, off t- topic, I'm do, sorry. Do you have a, um, just but side note, do you have a cat, Dr. Kontrovich? No, okay. <laughs> I've never had a cat, no. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad for that. <laughs> um, more of a dog person myself, anyway. Thank you for your work. I hope you're able to get outside, outside of the steel box. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Jim, do you have any recommendations based on this? Like, is it just a reason for more caution all around? Or it doesn't really change anything until we know what's going on? It's in that really interesting space, which we keep seeing in this pandemic, where it is a finding that deserves to be taken really seriously. Mm -hmm. And yet we also don't it, it, we just know it's serious enough that we need to study it more mm-hmm. and also that it doesn't clearly change anything that we already knew i mean it continues to hammer home the point that you don't just want to let this virus rip through young populations because it will at least for some of them have you know longer term consequences that we don't yet understand and we mentioned this yet for young populations not because myocarditis is more likely to happen in young people but because young people are more likely to not have severe symptoms and therefore think they're fine yeah the death rate is orders of magnitude lower among right. college age kids so if you're thinking like oh i'm young i'm fine like not to freak people out for no reason, but like we just don't know exactly what this does yet. And there may be long term damage to the heart, which varies in severity depending on the person. Or even short term, you know, it doesn't take yeah. a lot of stories of a young, healthy athlete, you know, having a heart attack, having a fatal arrhythmia to change everyone's, um, just that there's more to this picture yeah. than yeah. it's like a, a bad flu. You right. Know, that there right, right. are ways it's affecting us we don't even understand and for me it's reason to err further on the side of caution and think that you know next football season if we were to wait until next football season we might just have a better understanding of exactly what the risks are and how to prevent them and 
Right. Everyone could be making more informed decisions. And- right. I have a I have a question on the athletes in particular. Is is the focus on athletes like why is this particularly related to athletes? Is it just showing up more in athletes because athletes use their heart a lot more intensely, or is there some other reason why there's a focus on athletes? I think the interest in athletes is because that big Ohio State study was done in athletes. I don't think it means to suggest that this finding is unique to athletes, but it makes a compelling case, right, whenever someone is not just in the prime health years of their life, but presumably in, you know, peak physical fitness, that they are also vulnerable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that gets attention, right? It certainly yeah. runs contrary to the narrative that this is only a condition that affects, you know, older people with lots of chronic conditions. Right, right. I mean, it seems like we're going full full force with sports now. Like, what's going on with college sports right now? Or all sports? It's a really interesting moment. You know, I'm not your sports guy, but I know the NBA. Remember when we did our mm-hmm. our, our chat about that and we learned all mm-hmm. about this plan, which actually seems to have gone relatively well? Mm-hmm. That was a really interesting ethical minefield, I guess you could say. And it's even more so when you talk about college student athletes, which is what is being discussed right now when it comes to football, because universities rely on football in order yeah. to continue to exist. Mm-hmm. You heard the president in the debate this week, mentioned that he's brought back Big Ten football. That is just as ethically complex as the NBA was. This question is way more difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with college athletes in particular who are not getting paid, but for professional athletes too, like this is like being a frontline person essentially. And the risks are... High and even higher with this myocarditis stuff. And more difficult to understand, you know. It's one thing when you ask people to do high-risk labor, Mm -hmm. um, you can often usually say, well, there's a one in 1,000 chance that something will go wrong, you know. But you're going to get a hazard pay of X number of dollars. And it's very problematic (laughs) always, but at least people have some guidelines for their decisions. And I think what we just heard is that it's almost impossible um, yeah. But when you talk about the NFL and the NBA, people are making millions of dollars. When you're talking about college athletes, they're doing it just so they can get a, a scholarship. They're not being paid. Um, I don't know. I'd like to understand how schools are navigating that question or why any school is having a football season right now. Okay. Well, well, I have to go. And I also think we should take a break. So I think if you want to talk more about this, you should go ahead and then just Give me the give me the summary later. Okay. Are you going to a a, a rodeo? I'm not gonna dignify that question with an answer. You're in Texas now, as I understand it. It's not all rodeos here, okay? All right. I'm gonna call Adam Harris, a staff writer who covers higher education. Okay, great. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Zero. 
Hey, Adam. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, in the basement, so I uh, can't complain. Hey, I'm in the basement too. <laughs> so w- you weren't here for this, but we just talked to a cardiologist about myocarditis, which seems like it can have some effect, at least even among among young, healthy athletes. And that's an evolving narrative. There was a Red Sox pitcher, Eduardo Rodriguez, who is benched for the season. A 27-year-old basketball player died from a heart attack during practice. And a 20-year-old football player died from blood clot in his heart. I mean, football is not a socially distanced sport. And just Tuesday of this week, the Tennessee Titans had a COVID outbreak and, and paused team activities. So it's especially interesting at the college level. You know, these are unpaid student athletes at risk of going to college campuses. How is this being handled right now at the college level? So it's being handled different ways. You've seen some institutions and some conferences completely shut down their college football seasons, just kind of say that we're not going to be playing college football this year. Um, You saw some colleges say that we're going to postpone it until we learn new information. And then you saw some institutions kind of go ahead with it. They started practices, they started playing games, they had stadiums with limited capacity. And some of these smaller schools that ended up doing this, they now have national television games because there's some of you that are playing college football right now. Um, But over time, what we've kind of seen is that some of the conferences that canceled their season or postponed their season are making plans to come back. Each individual conference has kind of had to make their decision on, on its own. The Big Ten, for example, said that there was kind of too much medical uncertainty and too many unknown health risks. And that's why they were going to postpone the Big Ten's fall sports. Um, the Big Ten, of course, is one of the conferences that has said that you know it's looked at, at coming back and, and bringing football back. And so um, they're planning on bringing football back in October. And when you're looking at when they were making decisions and how they're changing their minds and saying that, okay, our, we, can, we can stop postponing it, um, there hasn't been much that's changed. And what we know about the science, what we know about how outbreaks are happening on campus, you know, we, we knew kind of going into this that colleges were some of the environments that were most susceptible to mass outbreaks from COVID. And we have seen that happen. We've seen students getting together. Um, I mean, just the way that institutions are built, they're built for high touch. So yeah, not much has changed from then to now. But the thing that I guess is different is the public pressure. The pressure from boosters, from politicians, you know, when you have the president saying that we need college football back, it's just applying a different level of pressure. Apart from the political pressures you mentioned, is money driving these decisions? It's hard to to kind of say definitively, like they are doing this because of the money. But I mean, if you look at how much revenue at some of these, particularly the Power Five conference schools, so, you know, the big schools that you're always seeing on college game day on Saturdays. You know, those are institutions where college football is a major revenue driver um, from the television contracts to the merchandise to, to just kind of the entire package. College football makes a lot of money for these mm-hmm. institutions. And so to, to have the prospect of going without that money, it was a very difficult decision to have to make, particularly in the situation where they're also 
scaling back the capacity on campuses where some institutions are only at 40% capacity. Is this hitting state schools harder than private schools? There are just kind of different pressures that are applied to public schools um, and private schools. I mean, over the last several years, um, you know, public institutions have been uh, kind of faced with these severe budget cuts and public higher education boards being more partisan. You've seen this kind of devolve into a form of culture war. So when when the president is tweeting, you know, we need to bring college football back, uh, that, that kind of often more Republican board will likely fall in line with that to say that, look, we need to bring college football back and you guys need to figure out a way to do it. So they are being put in this kind of incredibly difficult position, you know, with public funding on the line, the legislature could very well say, okay, you know, if you guys don't play football, then we're going to cut your budget by, by X amount over the next few years. Oh, wow. So it's not just branding the TV deals, the, I don't know, jerseys, what yeah. have you. It, it's also actually threats that they might lose funding from the state because of political pressure. Yes, Absolutely. This has just kind of been something that has been in the water for a while, but that when you have little culture wars to big culture wars style things on campuses, uh, it can kind of have long term consequences for a player's health. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's striking to me is when you, you know, when we, we, we talked about the NBA on here, these are college athletes. They're not paid. That necessarily has a different moral valence than, you know, someone choosing to return to work has the debate about restarting the season run into this old percolating debate about unpaid student athletes it has uh, back in june when colleges were kind of initially deciding okay we're going to bring our student athletes back to campus to do their workouts to get ready for the fall season it immediately kind of created this line that says these athletes are fundamentally different than the rest of your student body. If you are not willing to bring back the rest of your students, why are you willing to bring back these unpaid athletes to provide a different service for your institution? And so it's kind of ignited, immediately ignited this idea that, well, if, if they're different, if they're kind of being brought back in the same way that you're bringing back some of your employees, then that means that they could be an employee of the institution. That means that they're, you know, they're being classified differently. They should be being paid for this labor, for putting themselves at risk. And, and just broadly, this is exposing some of the hypocrisy of the idea of amateurism, you know, really kind of putting it in front of everybody to say that this is a money game and the players are the most essential part of that game and, and they're not being adequately represented or, or compensated for their work. Right. Do you think student athletes could organize and protest? If there is an argument that they are compensated in any way, it's through scholarships. And that if people feel that, you know, they'd lose their scholarship if they're the one person on the team or part of a small number of people on the team who, who refuse to play because they feel unsafe, you know, would it be helpful for entire teams, entire conferences, I don't know, the all NCAA athletes to, to organize right now and, and demand some safety standards? Some student athletes organized around public health, around Black Lives Matter, and around labor rights. It was hashtag We Are United. And basically, they, they were pushing for regular routine testing. They were pushing for all of these measures to make sure that students stayed safe. And then also that on the back end, that future generations of college athletes would be 
treated fairly, that they could be uh, paid for their work, that they shouldn't be stuck with sports-related medical expenses, including COVID expenses. They were trying to make sure that they weren't going to be forced to sign documents that uh, would serve as liability waivers, that they should be prioritized over the big salaries of the coaches and, and things like that. So to make sure that the institutions was kind of putting the student athletes first. And so if something like that catches on and becomes a, a massive movement, then I think that you could really start to see some change in the system because at this point, the athletes do have the power here. If all college athletes said that they, you know we are going to stop playing, we don't feel safe, we don't want to play the NCAA would be forced to shut the season down. Yeah. I guess I have complex feelings about introducing um, payment to athletes just in this moment. You know, it's something that seems very obviously necessary in normal times. But if suddenly we were like, oh, you feel unsafe and you're, you're putting yourself at, at risk of serious disease, would you do it if we paid you $50,000? Like, that's not the reason that payment should begin. Um, anyway, can fans do something? Are people who are, you know, advocating for seasons to go on, people who will be watching uh, these games, is there something that they can do to not just be complicit in a system of exploitation that may be putting people's health at risk? Yeah, it's really difficult to say that there's something that individual folks can do I think at this point, it's just kind of on, on college leaders to, to do an honest assessment of, of where they are, where the science is, and uh, kind of follow the science. Yeah. Following on the idea of fans being potentially complicit in this, I remember when there was a big exodus of at least um, announcements of people stopping watching NFL football because of concern about head injuries. I remember when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote for us about his decision to do that. And then other people were making the same move right as the science was emerging about, you know, just how much risk people were putting themselves at. And he didn't feel like he could be a part of, you know, supporting that in any way, even by turning on the TV, you know, to watch the NFL on Sunday. Should people who are similarly consuming or planning to consume college football, even just passively, just turning on the TV, you know, should they be trying to figure out their moral guidelines right now? Yeah. You know, actually, one of the things I was talking to a researcher the other day, and they were basically saying that, you know, if if CTE wasn't the thing that got people to stop watching football, I have a hard time believing that this would be the thing that gets people to hmm. stop watching football um you know it, it it would be a thing to say you know if if you do not feel that this is a thing that should be happening then um yeah maybe it is time to to turn off college football maybe it is time not to watch anymore and i've actually seen a couple of people who've said as much that i won't be watching the wisconsin badgers or, or whoever it might be this year um or next year because of how they've handled this decision to bring college students back and, and have them play football when nothing has fundamentally changed about the science from when they canceled the, or postponed the college football season. Um, yeah. Just, they're seeing other institutions playing and making money. and They are also in need of, of money. Right. Well, I can definitively say that I will not be watching the Wisconsin Badgers this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe it, it genuinely might be a good moment for people to, to interrogate, uh, you know, if it's not COVID alone or CTE alone, um, the part that they are playing just as passive consumers in the system that 
um, you know, it, it exploits the labor of uh, young college athletes um, and has created a system in which academia cannot function without that exploitation. Um, not not just chooses to make an extra buck, but the institution is threatened in such a way that it can't comply with basic public health guidelines, even in, in a an historic emergency like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, that seems moving enough to me, even if the uh, the cardiovascular uh, risks to college athletes turn out to be relatively rare. These other problems exist. Uh, I've gotten to the point in the conversation where I start ranting. Is uh, <laughs> was there anything else, Adam, that, that you wanted that I should have asked? Yeah, there was. Uh, I I can't remember which college it was, but but one of them was like, it may have been LSU. They were like, oh yeah, we're so happy. All of our fans, we didn't have any tailgating outside of the stadium, and everyone was complying, and we're we're just so proud of everyone. And then uh, you kind of look across social media, and you see like big LSU tailgates. Yeah, where people aren't wearing masks, they're not social distancing. So yeah, I think that there's just kind of some downstream effects of of having a college football season that kind of fly in the face of the science on COVID that administrators and college officials aren't necessarily thinking about. Right. Well, I will be tailgating alone this year. <laughs> I'm going to watch Madden uh, as I play it. Yeah, no one gets hurt in that game, right? Exactly. And the players are all paid for their likenesses. In it, so They're fun. all paid. Yeah. Oh, that's that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish I knew more about that in order to have something to say. But thank you for <laughs> covering this massive topic. I realize it's it's certainly complex, and I'm sure there are administrators and schools out there that are handling this this well or better than others, at least. But this is a really helpful overview of the broader problems at hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care, Adam. Bye. All right. See you. <laughs> Ring, 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 ring. Click hello. Um, Catherine, I'm calling you back because we should do the credits. Uh, great. <laughs> you don't like doing them alone, I know. I've uh, never been completely confident in the directionality of the slash, so <laughs> you could do it. That is true. Always, always a little bit uncertain about the slash are you saying you yeah, want me please, to do please. the credits I would, okay i'd be honored okay um this show was produced today by kevin townsend who puts up with us thank you kevin um you can write us at social distance at theatlantic.com or you can call us 202-642-6487 the best way to support this show and to get access to all of the atlantic's journalism is theatlantic.com slash support us thanks for teaching me about the heart jim you are welcome. Okay. Next week, the toes. <laughs> Please, no. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Later. Bye.